in uh, junior high, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I desperately wanted to be voted best actress in the yearbook, but sad story, they voted me walking dictionary. And how appropriate that vote became in the future, you may contribute a verse. I'm Josh Munkin, children's lit author, father, science communicator, and podcaster, joined by Brenna Jenneret, children's lit author, mother, avid climber, and outdoors person, and podcaster. This is the podcast You May Contribute a Verse, where we talk to kid lit creators, share their stories, and learn from their journeys. There are many times in the life of being a fan of things that you consume something and then want nothing more than to pick the brain of the person that created it. Hot off consuming the picture book, Calvin gets the last word. Brenna and I got one of the primary benefits of doing this podcast, which is to get to pick the brain of one of the persons who created it, author Margot Sorensen, in partnership with illustrator Mike Dees. Margot is a prolific multi-genre author who has a storied career thus far and has built her resilience and tenacity by choosing to have taught middle schoolers. Yikes. Margot's work is largely tinged with the ohana, the Hawaiian concept of family, seen through works like her picture book, Little Calabash, and woven into her identity as an author. I love Margot's Hawaiian name, Leipua'ala, granted to her by a family friend, meaning little gifts for children. How appropriate. What you'll hear in this episode, aside from us deconstructing Calvin Gets the Last Word, is partial silence for me, especially towards the end, both because I had an internet outage during our conversation, but more importantly, because I'm super jealous of Brenna and Margo's newfound relationship as agency siblings, Calabash cousins in the Dan Kramer of Page Turner literary family. Such a pleasure to share this conversation. Here is Margo Sorensen's verse. I have a hard time being formal after having taught middle school and high school. It's kind of tough. There's nothing formal <laughs> about that. Well, Margo, we're happy to have you here. Uh, we are having a conversation this afternoon with Margo Sorensen, or this morning for you, prolific children's author. And I'm looking at your website and noting that you're, you go well beyond just children's, uh, children's books. You're all over the gamut. Um, <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of author are you, or how do you see yourself as an author? Um, I guess open, I suppose, open to listening and observing what kids or people are doing or saying. And then, of course, the magic question that you as fellow writers know, what if, what if such and such were to happen? And so my mind is percolating all the time. I guess that's the kind of a writer I am. I'm not stuck in any one genre, although right now I'm very, very fond of picture books because I love the ability or the trying to have the ability to be concise and to the point. And then I love to see what my illustrators do with the words. Oh my gosh, it's, it just takes it to the next level. It makes it so much fun. So I guess that's the kind of an author I am. A what if author. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I love that. And as you're saying that about like the like what the um, illustrator brings to the book. So I was just rereading Kelvin again right before we came on because I wanted to you know have it like fresh in my brain. But I I love how the illustrator went through. And so Kelvin gets the last word. I mean, it's all about words, and it's a it's a dictionary. Like that that was so smart to me. That point of view from a dictionary, and this kid carries it around, and each word sort of highlights the scene. That was so smart. And 
I love when you open it up and it's got the um the end papers and there's like a list of all the words like kind of scribbled out on a chalkboard that was so smart like the whole book you know like there's that theme running through of the words and the chalkboard and all of that kind of stuff it was so good oh well, I should mention you. the illustrator is um Mike Dees just yes just to good give him a shout British out Colombian <clears throat> so the end papers thank you for mentioning those too those actually were the creative genius of my editorial team they came up with oh. that idea and said, hey, how about if we do some definitions on the end papers and uh, you come up with the words you want and the dictionary definitions that you want, and then they tweak them and all that and put them out. And honestly, I can't believe how many teachers and librarians I hear from all the time that say, that is genius. And I go, yeah, well, it wasn't me. <laughs> it was my editors, you know. So, and I think, I mean, the illustrations for Calvin Gets the Last Word that Mike Dees has done are just, they still crack me up. I mean, it's like the baby at the breakfast table going like that. And then the cat, <laughs> have you seen the cat? Oh my goodness. And just the, you know, snorking milk, snorking broccoli. And the broccoli, the yes. Oh, yeah. And the yes. mayhem on the bus. Oh my goodness. He just saw it, you know, just so vividly and put it on the pages. I just love it. One of the first things that I noticed reading it was this, like the strength of the two page spreads and how the scene unfolds, whether that's on the bus with the pencil case or in the classroom or what, whatever. Is that something that you conceptualized as you were writing it? No, I, you know, no. you think as being writers yourselves, you know, you think in pictures anyway, so I pictured it, but I did not picture it necessarily as a double page spread, say, mm -hmm. you know, it would, I thought, oh, that would just be really cool. And certainly Mike Dees saw that and just, you know, went for it in the library scene and, you know, in the, in the little league practice scene, all that. He, he saw all of that. And, you know, that's why I say, honestly, the illustrators, as you well know, are more than half the team, because if you have a crummy illustrator, good luck, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And he, because you put in so many words that I feel like, because, you know, my son, I read this to my son, he's four and he loved it. He thought it was great. And the illustrations are, you know, so much a part of that, like you're saying, but there's words in here, you know, like bewilderment, subterfuge, like those are not four-year-old words, but the scene that he drew around that was like so action-packed and fun that it was, you know, it makes kids want to learn those words or pulverize. What a great word for smashing stuff, you know, or like crashing <laughs> into things, which like any kid loves. So that, yeah. that right there too, I was really impressed with because it was like, these are big words, but they've been you know, engulfed in these like great illustrations and these like feelings to a point exactly. where people are like, oh, I got to learn that word. Like, what does that mean? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He definitely zeroed in on the quintessential meaning of each of those words and just took it from Calvin's viewpoint and just exploded the whole scene. I mean, they were just terrific. So it's, it's really, you know, one of those wonderful symbiotic processes where the illustrator and the author are on the same page, pun intended, but we never, you know, <laughs> communicated with each other at all until everything was all done. So um, wow. it's, it's amazing. What, what does it look like from your end? I mean, as, and I, I presume Brenna's 
process is similar to mine, but I, I conceptualize things that I will not say in the manuscript as artist notes. And I know a lot of other, a lot of other authors will do the same thing. Do those things unfold as an artist note? Are you describing subterfuge and the thing that's going on on the page um, with that sort of directionality? Or do you Actually, expect that to come out in the conversation afterwards? Yeah, not not for this um, not for this manuscript. I had no illustration notes whatsoever, and it was totally my my editors said they were looking for an illustrator who had a sense of humor, and mm. so I think <laughs> that is really key because Mike definitely has a sense of humor, and so you know when you write the manuscript, as you know, and it goes through iterations and all that in the dreaded revision letter. Although I really never got one on this, on this manuscript, but um, I'll have to show you a, a little rough draft here. So, um, but honestly, the, um, the ability for someone with a sense of humor and a great imagination to take the scene. Um, <clears throat> I tried to use words like, for example, when, when Calvin snorks milk out his nose, instead of, you know, like, like spits or whatever, I'm going, what can make it funny? You know, so not using illustration notes, but trying to use really strong, you know, zingy verbs. I used to tell my writing students, don't write oatmeal, write jalapeno. So that's what I was trying to do with my word choices. So um, what it looks like, Way back in the day, about five years ago, when I first started Calvin, it was called Henry Loved Words. Okay, that was, and here is the rough draft. Okay, and I will read some of the, and oh, I write yeah. everything in pencil first and then put it on the computer. So this is even oh. after, after I'd already hashed through a bunch of stuff, you know, um, visually on with my pen and pencil or pencil draft. Um, and I have some notes here, um, afraid of new situations, um, transform loser into winner, novice to master, scared to brave, dictionary helper, question mark, um, insurmountable obstacle, Henry needs to feel empowered, need to succeed, win, master a skill. So those are all notes that I have at the top there. Um, and so it's like a reminder to myself, like, hello, wake up, you know, you need to do these things in the, in the manuscript. So um, that's sort of where the illustration comes in, where I'm working really hard as you two work on the word choices. And then with a gifted illustrator, thank you, um, you know, they just take it to the next level. Wow. Was it, was the first, the original draft, did Henry always have a brother or was the brother an added character later to sort of give Calvin the catalyst to look for these words? Um, the brother was added later. It, there were always antagonists. You know, Henry was always spouting all these words and his friends would go, eh, and his parents would go, eh, and I'm going, you know what? It's not focused enough. You know, you really mm -hmm. need that, that conflict. And you know, what, what kid doesn't know about sibling rivalry, even if he or she doesn't have a sibling. So I thought, you know, let's go with that and see where it takes us. Yeah, that was so smart to add that to sort of like anchor the, the word choice. Yeah, the through line. Yeah, the through line that you set 
for the entire mm -hmm. story where he's thinking about his brother through the entire day it gives it that sense of cohesion, even though it's a whole bunch of different vignettes, which I think is super duper n narrative uh, in ways that they could just be um, snippets instead. Well, thank you for that. It, mm -hmm. it was really fun. And I, I, especially like, for example, with subterfuge, you know, they're passing the notes. And then what was fun for me was to try to figure out what would be left on the dictionary after each incident, you know, like the gum is stuck to the pages or there are grass stains on the pages. And so, you know, I played around with that a lot too. So that was, that was fun to see what that poor dictionary was going to put up with. There's not going to be I, a lot left of the dictionary after long. Oh yeah. Right. I, I really like that too. Yeah. I love the part at the end where, yeah, he's like, I gotta, like, I'm going to sleep. So he's like stuck under the bed and he's like tired and sleeping. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> and yeah, and then what would get left on the dictionary was almost like, um, like an Easter egg, you know, that you were looking for, like you were trying, you know, fit, trying to figure it out, like how Mo Willems always sticks his pigeon into every book. You're kind of yeah. like, ooh, what's going to get stuck on there now? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, so... What was the what was the inspiration for Kelvin? Like, how did you come up with the the dictionary being the one to narrate the story? Because that was so smart. Because I mean, breaking the fourth wall is a really hard structure, you know, to use in kids' books uh -huh. now. Like, the, you know, a lot of times it just doesn't work, or people aren't interested. But that was a really smart take. Oh, thank you. Well, I've always loved dictionaries. I grew up overseas and grew up speaking three languages because you have to, and so the fact that words mean different things in different languages and you use different words for them always fascinated me. And I read a lot uh, as a kid and still do. And when uh, we moved to the United States, um, words were still really important to me and trying to keep track of which word for which language and all that. And I just loved to read. I loved my, I still have my dictionary from um, the sixth grade, I still have it, and it's on my desk. So just the loving words, in fact, in um, junior high, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I desperately wanted to be voted best actress in the yearbook, but sad story, they voted me walking dictionary. <laughs> so. Something later in life you can be proud of, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you anticipate... I, it occurs to me now that, you know, considering Brenna, you know, reading it to her son and me reading it to my daughters, they won't have any practical knowledge necessarily of what a dictionary is. Do, do you think mm -hmm. about introducing the concept of a dictionary to 2021 20, kids? I, I don't know, because when I taught, you know, I just, uh, we always had dictionaries and it, it didn't even occur to me that kids this day and age wouldn't own a dictionary. Um, and I mean, I guess that's a sign of how out of step I am, right? You know, I can still write in cursive and use a rotary phone and all that. Um, but it just, it just was so inherently necessary that the dictionary be present and be a little person. And, you know, the kids do look up words, you know, on the internet and everything, but um, they don't have a little companion with them. And that was another thing I wanted Calvin to have because he needed a companion, you know, to help him against his brother. So it just never even occurred to me, um, sadly, that kids would not know what carrying a dictionary around really means. So I hope that 
some might be inspired. Yeah, I mean, I envision myself reading it to my four-year-old, asking her, her asking me what subterfuge is, first of all. But second of all, you know, what, what is a dictionary? Uh, and me being able to relate that, that intergenerational story of, you know, I had a, a blue Merriam-Webster dictionary on my shelf That's when I was what a kid, I had, too. Yeah. Loved it. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Don't know if I still have it. I'm going to check after we're done here yeah. for sure. But, you, uh, you know, that, that leading to, yeah, right. Right, that, that leading to dictionary purchases. Um, yes. or, or talking about the ways in which we could get information from books, you know, right. in previous years mm. when we didn't have search engines and things. Right. And, and I've had teachers mm. email me and say that this book, um, they highly recommend the book as a great introduction for kids for library usage, you know, to actually, yeah, I know. So you anticipated that, um, where they can be introduced to the idea of a dictionary in there and going, oh yeah, okay, there's a word that, and I can just find it at my fingertips. I don't need an internet connection. And, you know, imagine that. Shocking. Yeah, right. And then even going one step further, if they're in the library, right, how to use like the Dewey Decimal System, because I don't think that is a thing anymore. You know, like I remember having to pull out those really long drawers and like yeah. sift through and try to figure out like, you know, okay, right. what am I looking at here? Like, how, do, how are they organizing this? Because uh -huh. now... I mean, I learned how to do it and I could if they even had that set up anymore, but they don't. It's all digital. And yeah. now if I, I usually go into the library with my son who is super wiggly and so we'll I'll go straight to the librarian and I'm like, um, excuse me, can you help me find blah blah blah, you know, and she'll look and then she'll take me straight to it as opposed to me being like, Oh my gosh, like where am I? You know, to sort of orient yourself. Right. So that's another sort of layer of that. Like kids aren't really gonna I don't know how they teach that now, you know, how to find stuff in the library. I know. I, I don't either. It's, it's crazy. And um, I always used to be when I was teaching, because I also taught and coached speech and debate, that documenting your sources and making sure that they're credible and authoritative and not some weirdo conspiracy thing was very, very critical to me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just always feel more comfortable with a hard copy and I can see where it's coming from and all that. And then you don't disappear down the rabbit hole of research on the Internet, you know, which is another issue for kids. I know they're easily distracted. So I just really wish that, you know, I mean, the kids are getting they're all digital natives, as they say now, and they, they can do all sorts of things. But if they can really figure out a credible source from you know, an incredible, uncredible source. Um, I know teachers struggle with that a lot. So I just hope that having a dictionary will maybe lead to a little bit more thoughtful um, processing of what they're using. Here's my, my official petition, petition for uh, a follow-up to uh, to this book, which is Calvin Seitz's Sources. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I would read that. I need help with my citing yes, sources. Sure. Like I would totally check that out. <laughs> yeah, somehow oh it just God. doesn't have such a zingy title. To it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Well, you I can know that's it. that's hilarious. I'll have to let my publishers know. Well, I'll I'll send them this this uh, link for this recording. I know they'll get a kick out of it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned a five year journey from the first draft. Mm -hmm. Is that standard? For you that it's how, actually, how long they sort of take well as you two know being writers that's actually kind of on the short side 
Um, I've had some books like Aloha for Carol Ann, which was published in 2011. I started writing in 1989, you know, oh do the math. Oh, wow. I know. Yeah, then, right. I was um, thinking about it. Yeah. And then um, this is actually from the time they accepted the manuscript to the time it was published. It was just a little under two years. And that's pretty typical. But, you know, the, the lead time, as you two know, of re- revising, submitting, beating yourself up, you know, revising mm. <laughs> again and all that, it's, it's never over, um, is, is really can be very, very lengthy from 20 years to, you know, and then I wrote a lot of books under contract for perfection learning, which I was under deadline. And luckily, we lived in Minnesota at the time, where, as you know, it's darn cold out there. And so you might as well sit inside and write. So I had three-month three deadlines for some of those. And believe me, I was right there on it. So that, um, and those are still in print and still selling. So that's, that's kind of fun. But it's, oh. uh, it's a grab bag. And as my husband is very fond of saying, publishing is not really a business. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it just is glacial. It moves at a glacial uh, pace. But when yeah. the time's right, it's right. You know, we just have to be patient. So you mentioned um, Aloha for for Carol Ann, which I also got from the library. Oh <laughs> yeah, <That's> serendipity. <laughs> yeah, I um, yeah, I I just <clears throat> I put in your name, and I was like, I'll take all that I can, you know, that I can get from the library. So I got that one too, and it was so. I just, I love that, like how um, just quickly and easily it sort of transported me to a whole nother place. Cause I know you lived in Hawaii for a little while too, right? About 10 years. Is that 10 right? Years, Yeah. Yeah. And so that, I mean, this book really captures like that whole feeling, like all the flowers, the hibiscus and just, you know, the names and the culture and like, you know, taking off your shoes when you come into class. It was so, <laughs> it's just such a sweet, like happy kind of like like ray of sunshine of a book. And so I, um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm interested in that one too. Can, do you remember how, like your process on that and how oh, that came sure. about? Yes. Well, when we um, lived in Hawaii and our daughters were going to school at Konoho, um, they had lived all their lives in Hawaii, but kids would come from the mainland, you know, which is the rest of the United States. And they would be sort of, you know, on guard, like, what is this, you know, just like Carol Ann. Oh, no, am I going to have to learn a whole new language? What's this about taking off your shoes ish, you know, so <laughs> just the cultural differences. And um, Carol Ann is actually named it, very rarely do I use a real person in any of my books, but she was a young marine wife um, that we were friends with her and her husband, we live next door to the marine base in Kailua. And um, she was from Wisconsin. And (laughs) moved to Hawaii and she's going like deer in the headlights, you know, so we kind of helped the two of them through, you know, the cultural transition and everything. And so Mm -hmm. when um, I got the idea for Carol Ann, because our daughters would come home and say, oh, yeah, you know, we have so and so just new in our class this year. And she's from, you know, St. Louis. Right. And so the disconnect I found really interesting because I grew up in Spain and Italy. So you talk about different cultures and then moving to the U.S. for the first time, it's like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, (laughs) I had no idea, no clue um, about American culture. So um, just that whole trying to make someone feel at home 
and I thought it would fit in well with the aloha spirit, which is what, you know, you feel you have to earn it because you need to respect it. And it just really, um, it was a message I wanted to send. And I don't usually write books with the, okay, I'm going to teach kids this and this and this, because you know, mm. that's like a sure death knell for anything. I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 no. So I just, um, I wanted to send a message about aloha and being kind and being open and being welcoming. And one thing that's kind of fun is uh, a family friend from whom we met in Kailua. She was a kid along with our daughters. Uh, she's a teacher now in Colorado and she teaches second grade and she always reads Aloha for Carol Ann the very first day of school. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. What a nice, what a nice like full circle of a story. So how did you guys end up in Hawaii? Where Did you live in Minnesota before or after? After. So it was all, it's all been my husband's jobs. So, you know, we were, oh, okay. oh darn, a transfer to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> what a bummer, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was, it was a very, very special time. And we still go back because we haven't been back for a couple of years. And we still have, you know, our local friends are just, you know, tried and true and we miss them and we haven't seen them for two years, but we're always in touch. Do you have any other um, books out that are inspired by your time in Hawaii? Oh, yes. They're um, chapter books. I have Chemo and the Secret Waves, which is a surfing oh. mystery. And oh. for, that, for that, I used um, another friend from Hawaii. He was a kid with our daughters. He's a big surfer. And so I picked his brain on how to do a duck dive and all sorts of things so that, you know, kids who read it and who are surfers, I've even had kids write me letters. Oh, I really liked when you wrote about blah, 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 blah. I could just feel it. And I'm going, yeah, well, look at me. You know, this old woman, she has never been on a surfboard in her life. And I'm going, yes, thank you, researcher. Um, <laughs> so that's one. And then Danger Marches to the Palace, Queen Lily Uokalani, which is about the takeover of the Kingdom of Hawaii. And that's an adventure biography. Um, oh. And then Tsunami isn't, that's nonfiction. And that's uh, about tsunamis, and a lot of it is has to do with Hawaii. But the one that I just had published is Little Calabash, and that's a picture book published by Island Heritage, which is a Hawaii publisher. And it's about Little Calabash, who, and, and a calabash, I don't know if you're aware of it, it's like a bowl made out of koa wood or monkey pod. And it's used for serving food and all that. And the concept of ohana is very important in Hawaii. Mm. And they call people, if you eat with people often enough, you share meals together, you're called calabash cousins. And oh. there's that, you know, welcoming idea again. And so I had this idea of this little calabash that was stuck way at the back of the cupboard and everybody in the kitchen got to be used, but him. And, you know, the, like the, the beaters tell him, ah, uh, give up kid, you can't beat it. Or the, um, the, the toaster says, uh, you're not hot enough, you know, and all these terrible puns. That's unfortunately <laughs> what I'm known for. Um, and so finally, little Calabash figures out a way that Kayoki, that's the little boy and his mom can actually use him. Um, so he, ta-da, wins in the end. So that's another story that was inspired by Hawaii. That's so sweet. I saw that one on your website, and I um, I still need to add that one to my library list, so I'm going to put that one on, too. And it's got a 
great glossary at the end too with explanations of some of the foods that they eat and everything. So, you know, it's a little cultural excursion too. <laughs> well, and that's, that's fun too, that you can take um, what becomes a like a general cultural education and hinge it on something as small as a calabash, which, uh, you know, the way that you've described it, I can, I can see being an important sort of cultural artifact, but, but to make that a, uh, a character in itself and hinge the story on that, on that small thing, just like you did with the dictionary in Calvin, um, gives it such a, a pleasant hook, um, well, for people to follow you. along with. Thank you very much. It was fun to write. Margo, I was wondering when I, so I was, I was thinking about, you know, how you have kind of spanned so many different genres. And I was thinking to myself, cause you know, I'm, I've only written or tried to write picture books. And a lot of times, you know, my brain gets kind of stuck on one idea or, you know, working at the middle of something or whatever else, you know, it's always like churning some sort of picture book idea. But I'm wondering for you, because you write across so many genres, is it helpful to have these other outlets to be to sort of like jump out of the picture book framework or out, you know, out of the biography or whatever and into something else? Does it help to sort of jar your thought process? It definitely does. And I, I love the metaphor. Someone wrote it down somewhere and I can't remember to attribute it to their citing sources problem. Um, but <laughs> she or he said that writing is a lot like cooking. You have a story and you you need to step away from it for a while. Otherwise, you know, you're, as you say, you get stuck. So you just put it on one of the back burners on your cooktop and it simmers as it's sitting there and you're off working on another story. Um, and so when you get back, it's somehow different and mm. it's different because it's been simmering on the cooktop. It's been simmering in your brain. And I always try to be working on two or three picture books at the same time. I, I just think oh. it helps give me a sense of perspective. And, you know, when all else fails, I get up and take a walk. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that definitely helps too. Do you ever work on multiple genres at the same time? Or do you work within like picture books and do a couple of projects or within, you know, romance novels and do a couple of projects or do you cross genres? I, I cross genres. I, I was, you know, my young adult novel set in Italy, Secrets in Translation, published in 2018. I started that in 2004. Okay, so that's 14 years. And I had a number of picture books and um, some chapter books published during that time that I was working on. So I just, you know, I'm, I guess I'm easily distracted. <laughs> or you have a lot of burners on your stove. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> do you work um, business-wise? Do you work with an agent? I do now. Yes, um, I have a wonderful agent, and I signed with him two and a half years ago. He has not sold anything for me yet, but he is working very hard submitting. Um, giving me great ideas. He helps me think outside the box terrifically. And he's so supportive of all my published books that he had nothing to do with. He, you know, leads a book club and he had them all read Secrets in Translation. How about that? And, you know, we did a virtual thing. It was really great. And he's wonderful on, you know, publicity and sharing. And I know, I mean, I'll send this to him too. And he'll put it on Twitter and, you know, all that. So he's a uh, He's terrific, and I really, really appreciate what he does, For sure. as you know. <laughs> I do know. Agency Sib. 
what 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 was the the thing that flipped you over into working with an agent and and i guess how how has the process been different since then i mean i know i know that you you haven't sold anything together just yet but are working on it but I, i imagine things are different now working with him than they were before what happened was um way back in the day when i first started writing hardly any children's book writers had agents we didn't need them Every single big house was open to submissions. They were respectful, um, you know, and yeah, sure. It would take six months to a year before you'd hear something, but you know, the doors were open and then lo and behold, the computer arrived. Yes. I was writing before computers and you know, were in, in use. Um, and so then all of a sudden, everybody who had say a child or a grandchild said, Oh, I can do that. And then they started, this is my theory. And I've, read this before, um, they started flooding the publishing houses with all these little sweet, you know, use good manners at the breakfast table type stories, you know. Mm-hmm. And so in our, in self-defense, you know, the publishers go, you know what, we just can't do this. So they started closing to submissions from unagented authors. And that started mm-hmm. really coming down about... I think maybe 10 years ago, it started to get really bad. And so the big difference that it's made for me is that, um, A, I know an editor is seeing and responding to my work. B, Mm -hmm. I don't spend hours in research. And I did spend hours um, trying to find the right editor, find a publishing house that was open to unagented Mm -hmm. submissions, trying to figure out how to tweak the query letter so that they would, you know, read the manuscript and... um, it, it just has freed up my time so tremendously. It's, uh, it's wonderful. And I just, it's wonderful knowing that Dan Kramer, our page turner literary agent is, mm-hmm. you know, he has our backs. He really, really does. And it's just a, you know, we writers are, are a strange bunch. Why do we do what we do? Right. And it's just nice to know that someone gets us and is on the same page. And that's a great confidence booster. Yeah. I, I agree because I recently I because I I was rep or I had started getting repped by Dan in or sorry I'm not saying this correctly we I signed with him at the end of July um, so I haven't been repped for that long but uh-huh. slowly like week by week my writing process has kind of changed slightly in the fact that I'm not so like I'm not so desperate to you know to create something new and to be a part of every single contest and submit to everything because I just want to get out there, you know, and have people see my work. So I can have like last week I was just really tired and I'm like, I need a break. I've been writing straight like every day, you know, every single day since whatever the beginning of the year. And I'm like, I just my brain doesn't work anymore. I need like a creative (laughs) break for a minute, you know? And I was like, oh, well I can I can have that because you know, it's no big deal. Like the pressure has been taken off a little bit, which is so nice. And it's, yeah, you know, if nothing else, if, if I don't, you know, sell anything with Dan, like, I'm so happy to have him because yeah, he's, he's so great. So supportive, so sweet and open about, you know, what is going on and the communication is, you know, incredible. But beyond that, the sense of relief is just like, it's so, (laughs) it's like so pleasant, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm all right. I can do this. And you know, another nice thing too, (laughs) is that 
as we get to know each other, you know, it, each other fellow siblings, um, it's just so nice to see how talented they all are and how nice and respectful they are. You know, and I think that's a quality that, that Dan has and that's what he's looked for besides talent in, you know, his clients, which is very reassuring, you know, to me. It's like someone has, you know, a sense of what's right, what's fit. Um, you know, it's, it's very special. And it frees us up to write. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And because everybody, I've you're the only one that I've met, you know, in person. Right. But everybody else that I've, you know, corresponded with on Twitter, just online has been, yeah, so congratulatory and supportive and sweet and just like, oh, hey, like, that sounds great. Or this is a great idea, or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I agree. It's sort of a, I feel like it. it's attributing to Dan, the sort of guy he is and the sort of like culture he wants to create with his agency. So, right. It's an yeah. Ohana, a family yeah. An Ohana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that a lot. I like that. Definitely. It is. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Cause I, I was like, well, I'm going to reach out to Margo cause I would love to talk to her. And I'm like, I, you know, I think it'll be okay. Cause I've talked to her a couple of times online, but I'm like, I don't know if she'll say yes or not, but you, I mean, you wrote back immediately. And I thought that was so, it just, yeah, it speaks to what kind of person you are. And I really appreciate that you got back to me so quickly. And it was really nice to be able to finally talk to you. Well, thank you. The feeling's mutual. And it's so nice to see you guys. And Josh is back. <laughs> I think I'm back. Can you hear me? Okay, now? Yeah, yes. now we can hear you. Okay, yep. good deal. Yeah. All right, yeah. good. Well, I was well, just going to say that the, the, my biggest contribution to that portion of the conversation was going to be uh, how jealous I am of your Ohana. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> the Ohana that you all are building with cousins, Calabash cousins that you haven't even met yet. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, wow. Great time. Oh, that's a great line. <laughs> that's a great line. Oh. Well, Margo, do you have um, do you have any upcoming projects you can talk about that you're working on? Or do you want to tell everybody where they can find you? Um, at, like online? Oh, sure. Online. Um, my website, margosorensen.com. And, you know, they're, all my books are there and their reviews and all sorts of other things are there. And um, information about uh, virtual visits, uh, information about in-person school visits, which, you know, um, I was going to have one next week at Punahou School in Honolulu, and they had to change oh. it from in-person to virtual. Oh, bummer. So, I know. But anyway, at least I'll be meeting with, you know, K through five, you know, six different presentations next week, but all that's on my oh, wow. website, my Twitter account, my Instagram account, my Facebook account, which is really about Italia, my secrets um, and translation book. And, um, you know, I love to hear from readers. It's, you know, just through their parents um, or their teachers. Unless it's um, an adult book, of course. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so it's just, you know, wonderful to just keep reading and keep broadening horizons by every page you turn. That's that's what's key. Episode 30 of You May Contribute a Verse has come to an Ohana end. Find Margot at all the places she mentions, but most importantly at margosorensen.com. That's M-A-R-G-O-S-O-R-E-N-S-O-N. 
As for Brenna and me, You May Contribute a Verse is a homespun production produced, edited, recorded, conceptualized, and marketed by Brenna Jenneret and Josh Munkin. Hit us up at verse.show and find the show and me on Twitter as at verse show. That's V-E-R-S-E-S-H-O-W. Find Brenna on Twitter as at Brenna Jenneret and at brennajenneret.com. Look in the show notes for her name. The artwork for You May Contribute a Verse is an amazing picture commissioned for the podcast from a very talented artist, Charlie Munkin, age eight. Love you, Charlie. The show's music is provided graciously by Robbie Czar via tracks from his album A Tragic But Happy Horse. Engage with his music and musings at partist.com. That's P-A-R-T-I-S-T.com. If you would be so kind, however you are listening to this, let us know what you think with a comment or a rate on the site or on your podcasting medium of choice. And remember the answer, that you are here, that life exists, and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. <laughs>